always best. So, but I mean, if you are a super soldier, you you need to be super size it. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to go ahead and um, listen to what's the deal with Trump. He did it last night, and I want to hear what he has to say today. And so I'll get that ready. Some years ago, we made a documentary about Donald Trump. It wasn't flattering. Trump screamed and shouted and threatened lawsuits, and it was never broadcast. Now we think it's time for you to see it, because the new Trump and the old Trump are the same Trump. But he lacks character. I mean, it's the American dream gone berserk, really, is what it is. It wasn't only Trump sometimes, long-time critics who told us about his flaws. Trump himself unknowingly predicted his own fate. I think one of the most important aspects of the book is I try and define people that don't have it. Because most people don't have it. And that's the sad part. And they want to have it. And they go out and they lose their money, they lose their families, they lose everything. And it's a sad situation. But you see it a lot with these hucksters that are on television selling deal books and selling, you know, records. And they never made 10 cents in their lives, but now they become wealthy selling the records. Although most of them, if you've read, have gone bankrupt over the last year. So I guess they didn't sell as many records as they thought. But, you know, they, they sell, and these people put up their $500, and worse than that, then they go out and they borrow money against some leveraged house. And this Things that can't work. And I feel very sad for those people. Donald Trump hasn't had time to feel sorry for anyone in the last year. He's been too busy trying to save himself. So different now from his heyday. We do anything to try to make him look bad. I I can't stand that. I haven't seen one thing that makes him look bad. But they try. I think he's an extraordinary person. 
Everybody is just sour grapes because they can't do what he can do. The 
best apartments in the world. This has really turned out to be almost mystical. It's been great. He's proud of himself. No area of the news was immune from the Trump hype. When Gorbachev came to New York for a summit in 1988, Trump saw a chance for a PR bonanza. The week before he arrived, all the television stations in New York said that Gorbachev was planning a visit to Trump Tower. Some of them even printed in the paper that this was going to happen. At no time was Trump Tower even tentatively scheduled as a place for Gorbachev to visit. It's almost a textbook example of a publicity stunt, which worked and which has worked in many other occasions for him. Trump also considered himself immune from criticism, even by a Pulitzer Prize winning architectural critic. I mean, you have an idiot like Paul Goldberg, who has probably the worst taste I've ever seen. Anytime he gives me good, I get scared when he gives me a good review. He's smart. Because most of the time, when he gets good reviews, they're not successful buildings. But you have a guy like Paul Goldberg, who comes in, he's going to fight this job. Why? Because I said bad things about him on my book. Because I said he suffers from a lack of taste, which he does. Just take a look at the way he dresses. Trump is. Possibly the only developer who has sued an architecture critic for a bad review. It was Paul Gap, the critic of the Chicago Tribune. It was a nuisance lawsuit. It was done just to harass Paul Gap of the Chicago Tribune. Ultimately, it went nowhere, which is where it deserved to go. By this time, it seemed Trump could say almost anything about almost anybody. Do you mind if I sit back a little bit because no. your breath is very bad? <laughs> Has this ever been told to you before? No. Huh? Okay, then I won't bother. <laughs> no, actually, like, that's, right, that's how you get the edge. Who cared about Trump's abrasive behavior? Everybody like loved really his toys. <laughs> to me, a fantasy fulfilled. To leave Donald Trump, the money mogul with the Midas touch, asking, who's been sitting in my chair? Who's been drinking my champagne? And who's been sleeping in my bed? Why, that little old Channel 10 news reporter, me. That's who, Sheila Ellen Stevens. No matter what happened then, everybody remembered one thing Donald Trump had done. Donald, you performed a great public service. That was on November 13, 1986, when Trump completed the reconstruction of the public ice skating rink in New York Central Park. For five years, the rink had been closed, as the city spent $12 million trying to fix it. Then Donald Trump stepped in. He said he'd fix it fast and on budget, and he did. People even thought he'd done it for nothing. I think it was a level of competence, and we drive, and we push, and we get things done. Trump got paid in full. He's awesome. Some of his contractors He's didn't. Awesome. And that's a story that didn't get told. Mm-hmm. I want you to work, he says, but there's one uh, caveat, and that is that the uh, work has to be pro bono. And uh, I said, well, pro bono, I mean, my goodness, I'm Italian-American, bono has to be Italian, I'll go for it. Well, little did I know that pro bono meant for free for the public good, but uh, in reality, what, what, what he was asking us that to do Trump's was that you to didn't supply know. the services for and the that you ring agreed. and uh, to dispense about. with any profits or expenses. Back so then, Donald that. Trump was no ordinary rich man. He was the people's billionaire. Why didn't your daughter bring him home? 
across the street from the skating rink was the St. Moritz Hotel. Trump bought it a year earlier. He called it a brilliant deal. No one bothered to look below the surface. He said he paid $31 million. The real price was $70 million. In 1988, he sold the hotel to Alan Bond, the Australian Donald Trump. Bond paid a whopping $180 million. That, said Trump, gave him a $100 million profit. Conveniently, he forgot to subtract his costs. So, conveniently, did the press. When Trump bought stock, the financial press listened, and the financial press wrote, and people read, and people bought. And Trump sold, and Trump made money. Then came the crash of 1987, and Trump boasted, I got out whole, I didn't lose a dime. And the financial press wrote, But like everyone else, Trump lost. Resorts, Alexander's, MCA, he owned them all, and there were others. Even when Trump flaunted his marital infidelity, editors covered his tracks for him. A professional photographer took these pictures of Trump, his wife Ivana, and his close and personal friend Marla Maples in Aspen over Christmas 1989. He tried to sell them, but for six weeks, he couldn't find a buyer. During the 80s, the, uh, the cult of, um, of uh, the rich and of great wealth and of great ostentatiousness was very much in. He met a need <coughs> for the press. The press needed a poster boy for the 80s, an emblem a shorthand way of telling people what was happening in the culture. But as the new decade began, the poster boy of the 80s woke up to find himself on the media's 10 most wanted list. Although no one had raced to be first with the story of the Trump divorce, there was an Olympic-sized competition not to be last. The devastating thing about the Marla flap is that it opened Trump to ridicule for the first time. And uh, that is very deflating. It's not only deflating, but it, it turns the publicity machine around. All the lovable quirks on the way up look very foolish, if not stupid, on the way down. And it's going to be uh, it's very hard for him to come back from this kind of ridicule. Overnight, it seems, America turned from a fascination with what Trump has to what he could lose. Do you wish we'd all go away? Absolutely. In the old days, that is just a few months earlier, Trump had the power to dismiss the press, to make reporters accept his claims as facts. Now the press wouldn't go away. And though the stories were about numbers, it was easy to see the numbers were working against him. Look at this chart, which is based on a report from the New Jersey Casino Control Commission. By the middle of 1990, only three of Trump's 22 assets were profitable. Trump wasn't rich. His net worth was minus $294 million at the present market value. He owed one bank alone $993 million, only slightly less than the bank had loaned to the entire country of Venezuela. There's nothing the press loves more than bringing down the person it built up yesterday. Once he had been on the cover of Time, when his new book came out, it was reviewed on the back page. And the review was scathing. Inside every fat ego it starts, there must be a thin, self-revealing book struggling to get out. The review didn't spare his wife either. Was Ivana's plastic surgeon under the impression that she was entering the witness protection program, it asked? But the press alone couldn't slay the media monster it created. 
For a moment, the book shot to the top of the bestseller list before disappearing like Judge Crater. In the world beyond New York, he's Donald Trump, self-made billionaire. But in Brooklyn, he's still Fred Trump's son. And in Brooklyn, they remember it was Fred Trump who built the family fortune. Fred Trump would be here most every day. And he have his sons here. And it was teaching him the business from the ground up. And Donald was one of my best customers. He'd have a hot dog most every day. On a few occasions, he would say to me that uh, uh, this must be uh, a good business. And I'd say, I, I, it's a good business. I'm making a living, but I think yours is a little better. When Fred Trump started out, he built wood shingle houses. During World War II, he constructed homes for the military. When the war ended, using his political connections and little of his own money, he turned his attention to giant developments in New York's outer boroughs. Today, he still owns them. It was decent, but never good, the service. And the, 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 the pat answer they give you here at maintenance is, this is not Manhattan. You get Brooklyn service here, whatever that means. I have no idea what that means, but, but walls have to fall down before you get any kind of service here. I'm just fortunate not to be a senior citizen here. What happens? That's where they get absolutely no, no service at all. Nothing. Because if they move out from their $150 a month apartment, the rent will go up to six, seven hundred. But they're they're afraid. See senior citizens, they're they're between a rock and a hard but they're afraid to complain. Fred Trump taught his son how to be tough. And from childhood on, Donald had his own builder's vision. children and while he was adored at home he was a behavior problem at school i was sent to a military academy because i was really a problem i was a, a very difficult guy for my parents then at fordham and the wharton school of business he missed the turbulent 60s in 1969 when when uh, most other people in their early 20s uh uh were from upper middle class backgrounds at Ivy League colleges, were marching and, and uh, uh, storming the gates, Donald Trump was re reading FHA foreclosure notices in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, looking for houses that he could take over and rebuild. Donald Trump had learned that for many real estate developers, lawsuits are just part of the cost of doing business. Fred Trump was charged twice with making windfall profits on government-financed Brooklyn developments. After the completion of Trump Village, he was forced to return $1.2 million in overestimates. But not before he built a private shopping center on his property. There were more fortunes to be made in Brooklyn, but Brooklyn was comfortable, Brooklyn was boring. And most of all, Brooklyn was his father's turf. One way to think about Donald Trump is uh, John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. Uh, he's the guy from Ocean Parkway in his mind. Though he grew up with a father who had a lot of money, he grew up in a very middle-class way in, in his own mind, and certainly crossing the bridge was a huge thing for him to do and something his father never wanted to do.
Trump crossed the bridge. To some, it looked like twilight for the city. But what Donald Trump saw was a bright new dawn. He takes Manhattan. That's what it says. Donald was the young man who, the second generation boy, was going to conquer Manhattan. And he stood with me once in his park after we'd have had an intense negotiation in which we'd fought, and, and as we often did. And he pointed to all these buildings around just about here. <clears throat> and he said to me, I'm going to be bigger than Helmsley in five years. Trump what. made his first move for two large sites, he did a few it. miles apart and bordering on the Hudson River. When they were owned by the Penn Central Railroad, but the railroad was bankrupt, so and the properties were up for sale. As Donald Trump saw it, the opportunity was ready-made. The railroad was looking for a developer who was politically connected. What you're supposed to do. I knew that right away that he didn't fit the standard mold, and that the, all the people who would have to pass on this, all of them, right up the line would be troubled if you might put it bluntly it was who the hell is donald trump and why are we contracting what was what could be a hundred billion dollars worth of real estate with this unknown young man the 28 year old trump would solve the problem brilliantly as he would in the years ahead no money down juggle the facts when necessary and use your political connections he took Eichler to meet then-Mayor Abraham Beam. The mayor put his arm around after I took a few minutes to tell the mayor why I was there. And he put his arm around Donald's father. And he said to me, whatever Mr. Trump wants in this town, he gets. He had a very good father. childhood friends, and Beam benefited from large Trump campaign contributions. So did Governor Hugh Carey, who would help Donald Trump again and again. Another close advisor was Trump's lawyer, the notorious Roy Cohn. Whether he could have done these things uh, without his father's influence or his father's resources, I don't know. I, I don't think you'd get an ordinary 28-year-old uh, getting options on uh, three such uh, magnificent pieces of real estate. Trump was his father's son. He tried to build federally financed housing on one of the sites. When that failed, he found a new way to get money from the government. With a little help from his friends, Trump got the city's huge new convention center built on his land. I'll give up my $4.4 million brokerage fee, he said, if the city will name the convention center for my father. Everyone thought that was unusually public-spirited until it was discovered that Trump was only entitled to a fee of less than $600,000. The convention center was named for U.S. Senator Jacob Javits. But the Penn Central also owned the rundown Commodore Hotel right next to Grand Central Station. I wouldn't have taken the Commodore if he gave it to me. And I didn't know it'd be anybody in New York who'd take it if he gave it to me. But one day he looked at me and he said, I'm going to buy the Commodore for $10 million. I'm going to get Jay Pritzker at Hyatt to manage it, turn it into a Hyatt, and I'm going to get Equitable to provide $75 million to, re to rehabilitate it, to the point where it's almost like new construction. I'm going to tear it down to the, to the skeleton and then redo it. And I said, you have really gone crazy. 
there was more exaggeration than truth in the way Trump lined up his partners for this project by suggesting he already had the option on the hotel when he didn't. Years later, he patented tactics like this, calling them truthful hyperbole. Trump's men went to work obtaining necessary approvals and huge tax breaks designed for construction of hospitals and low-income housing. Lawyer Roy Cohn was on the job, as was Stanley Friedman, a deputy mayor, who would soon join Cohn's firm. Years later, in an unrelated matter, Friedman went to jail for his part in one of the city's worst corruption scandals. Back then, the project was approved on the last day of the Beam administration. Trump and his upscale hotel walked off with one of the largest tax breaks in city history, worth an estimated $200 million. I got everything I wanted, 40 years of tax abatement. People would say, how did you get 40 years? I said, because I didn't ask for 50. That was the, it was so easy. I don't blame Donald Trump for asking for whatever he could. He's a private developer in business to make money. He had no obligation to the city. In fact, he was being helpful because without him, the site might not have been developed. It's up to the city, to the Board of Estimate, to the mayor to stand fast and to negotiate a deal which not only allowed the property to be developed, but was in the best financial interest of the taxpayers uh, for uh, that time and for the future. That the city failed to do. Trump was no longer a kid from Brooklyn. He was an established developer and something else. He was the king of tax abatements. In the 1980s, other developers would follow his lead until building luxury housing with tax abatements became almost as popular as junk bonds and yellow ties. I don't really know what that means, but okay, now it says Trump's Tower. There's nothing more pleasing to a developer than the words, no money down. <laughs> At the Commodore Hotel, Trump saw firsthand the incredible lightness of leverage, so he tried it again. No rundown neighborhood to build up this time, though. It was literally a Tiffany location, adjacent to the famed store on Fifth Avenue in the heart of Manhattan. Here he would build an edifice to himself, a retail atrium, all marble and bronze, 13 floors of offices, the rest expensive apartments, Trump Tower. Donald called me up one day in my office at about quarter to 12, said meet me at Bombwood Teller in 15 minutes. Naturally, I dropped everything I was doing and came right over here. The first thing Donald said, isn't this the greatest location in the world? We're going we're gonna to build the most exciting building in the world here. If the Hyatt had been a term paper in doing business in New York, the tower was a doctoral thesis. Here's how it worked. Again, get someone to finance it. Equitable had been in on the Hyatt and owned the land under Bondwitz. For a 50% interest, Equitable would pay him to build. Then, get the players who can deal with the city, state, and community. Again, Roy Cohn came on board. Finally, find a way to get approval to replace a seven-story building with a 58-story tower. Trump was determined to have every square foot he could have, and so the battle began. And it took us 15 months uh, with a lot of shivers up our, our backs, uh, never knowing whether we were going to win or not win. But Trump is a brilliant taskmaster at maneuvering behind the scenes politically as well as uh, in the real estate world. And he succeeded. Once again, Trump got millions in tax abatements by finding a loophole in a law designed to promote middle-income housing. 
to neutralize the opposition in future battles, he soon hired the city's housing chief, <coughs> who had opposed him on those tax abatements. In 1986, after the building had been completed, Trump broke one of his cardinal rules. He bought out his partner, Equitable. And that cost him money. No matter, it would seem then, if the Hyatt had made him a player in New York, Trump Tower had made him a player in the world. Trump Tower was Reagan-era beauty come true for everyone. Trump was praised for his work, even by the critic he loved to hate. I've never minded the atrium that much as a work of design. A lot of people find it too glitzy, that uh, sort of rosy, pink, apricot, whatever you call it, peach-colored marble. I always found kind of neat, actually. It's, uh, it's sensual, it's almost sexy. Uh, it's one of the few cases in which somebody has managed to make glitz aesthetically convincing. I like very much the, uh, the Trump Tower because, uh, especially the lobby, because it says exactly what it is intended to say, which is spend, spend, spend as you've never spent before. What about the apartments? At $1 million for two bedrooms, they're some of the most expensive in the city. Trump boasts they are the best. The molding, the base molding is the cheapest. It, it, it's what housing projects get. The, the kitchens, if I was in a housing project, I would have had a better built kitchen than what Donald Trump put in the Trump Tower. The kitchens were... <laughs> I've, I've never seen more sloppily installed and more cheaply built kitchen cabinets. All of my clients you know, ripped them out. The tower was also home to Trump and his family. Their 36-room suite had three floors, a waterfall, a 100-foot living room, and a lavishly decorated ceiling he once compared to the Sistine Chapel. Ross McTaggart was the second designer brought in to manage this remarkable apartment. I was once in Christie's Furniture, and we were looking at some pieces there, and he focused on some Louis XVI pieces. Superb, I mean, incredible quality. But he didn't understand the price. They were estimated to be at eighty dollars to $120,000 sale, which wasn't bad, really, you know, for 200-year-old furniture. That's superb quality. And Blaine Trump, who works at Christie's, happened to be there, his um, sister-in-law. Mm. And he said, well, why is this furniture going to be so expensive? You know, just because it's old? And she said, well, well, no, it's, it's, it's the quality. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's got a history. And he turned to me and he said, well, my stuff is better than this that I'm having made. I said, well, actually, no, I have a little bit of problem with the furniture that's been selected. It's not it's <coughs> this kind of quality. He said, well, no, it's going to be. He said, it's, it's cost a lot of money. It's going to be. It's going to be better than this. And we started battling. And he said, it's going to be better. He just insisted. And then Blaine sort of shook her head. He looked at her and he said, I can get better than this, can't I? And she shook her head and said, Donald, you're just never going to understand, are you? Workmen pounded away on Trump's apartment for three years. His downstairs neighbors stopped making her monthly payments. Lawsuits flew in both directions. I wanted to move in here because I thought it was going to be a great building with fantastic views and also a bigger apartment than what I used to have. However, I never expected to have all these run-ins with my neighbor, who is Donald Trump, who lives above me. And... Since I moved in, he has done nothing else but construction. The building of Trump Tower was the true art of the deal. Saving money was the key. Chapter 1. Hire the cheapest demolition contractor you can find, even though he has little experience. 
Trump hired William Kosicki, whose principal business was window washing. Kosicki, in turn, hired what became known as the Polish Brigade, more than 200 immigrants with no working papers who were paid one-third the union rate and worked under difficult conditions. Years later, deny you ever knew they were there, even though you visited the site. They were sleeping in the building. They had no protective equipment. All the OSHA requirements were being ignored. They had no masks. They had no gloves. They were stripping wires with their bare hands, hot electrical wires. Chapter 2. That's crazy. Don't tell anyone that the building contains asbestos. The reason? Mm. Asbestos is costly to remove and dispose of. Trump says he isn't legally responsible. The law says he is. With the danger that was involved in working there. Because all the wires... A lot of construction. It was covered with asbestos. Chapter 3. Hire a waste hauler who doesn't care what he carts and knows how not to leave tracks. Trump's demolition contractor got Eddie Garofolo, identified by law enforcement officials as mob-connected. In August of 1990, while reportedly cooperating with federal authorities investigating racketeering in the construction trades, Garofolo was shot to death gangland style in his driveway. In the dead man's pocket, a wad of cash and a high-rated comp card for the Trump Taj Mahal. Chapter 4. When the demolition begins, appear to be public-spirited. Promise artifacts from the building to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Chapter 5. Jackhammer the artifacts when you learn the cost of saving them. The demolition contractor allegedly said that it was going to take a long time or a longer time to take those heavy panels down before anybody could make a decision. Trump apparently gave the orders to have them demolished. Chapter 6. Threaten the lawyer that the Polish illegals hire after your cheap contractor defaults on paying them. Make sure that the threats aren't traceable in case the guy isn't scared off. Mr. Barron had told me in the one telephone conversation that I had with him that Donald Trump was upset because I was ruining his credit reputation by filing the mechanics liens and that Mr. Trump was thinking of filing a a personal lawsuit against me for a hundred million dollars for defaming his uh, reputation. It turned out that Mr. Barron was Donald Trump's favorite alias. When this was revealed, Trump said, what of it? Ernest Hemingway used the pen name, didn't he? Chapter 7. Manage to stay out of trouble when your contractor is tried, found guilty, and fined for not paying his Polish illegals. And at any moment, uh, this should have fell out of bed. Now, the people you got to ask the questions for is, is over in Newark, New Jersey, the Department of Justice, uh, where, interestingly enough, Donald's sister worked. She was the number three person in the office. The assistant U.S. attorney said, don't mention the name Trump in, inside here. If you want to talk about Trump, just say, let's go outside and take a walk. At the time, Trump's sister was an assistant in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Newark. Today, she's a federal judge. Chapter 8. Have Daniel Sullivan make peace between the union and non-union workers on the tower. In late July, July 27, Donald called me and uh, asked me, please come to New York because he had a major problem. The employees he represented on the demolition of the Monmouth Teller building, we're going to have
hang one of his vice presidents, Tom McCary, off the building. Prevent the hanging, but a decade later face legal charges that you defrauded the union pension and welfare fund. Chapter 9. To build the largest concrete structure in New York City, turn again to Roy Cohn. Cohn is also the lawyer for the New York crime boss who controls the concrete business. Payoffs from contractors are dropped off at Cohn's office, so he may get paid twice for his services here. But then, you get who you pay for. Conclusion. In every respect, the building was pure Trump. Behind every facade, another facade. Spend the kind of money that we've spent on a building where we spend for the finest marble, for the finest bronze, for the finest everything else. You have to be careful, to be perfectly honest, because it really does add to your risk. And we decided to go absolutely first class all the way, and it's something we're very happy that we did. He calls it Trump Tower. It's money power that'll get you up where you want to be. That's a terrible song. Around the corner from Trump Tower was another golden opportunity for Trump. He found two neighboring buildings on Central Park South and bought them. One was a hotel, the other was a problem. It was an apartment house and it was occupied. In uh, 1981, a group of tenants from 100 Central Park South uh, came to interview me and discuss a problem they had. Apparently, Donald Trump had bought the building and started spreading rumors immediately that he intended to evict all of the tenants and demolish the building and build a tower. This man walks in, makes a blanket statement, you're all evicted, I'm Donald Trump, get out of our building. He hired one of the worst companies in New York, who was specialists in basically emptying buildings. Previously censured by the Attorney General's office, they have a record there this long and uh, that firm went to work on us and we were told by the uh, superintendent that they were going to begin looking into our sex lives our drinking our is anyone a homosexual or a lesbian and and what are all these where are the weak spots of the tenants and they were going to find them tenants were being approached and told that you better move out because if you don't move out now or you don't allow us to put you somewhere else now you'll be evicted and you'll have nothing you'll be thrown into the street and a woman knocking on the door and saying, I've got to come in and help you. We're going to look for a place for you because tomorrow you're going to be out. You're going to be out. Services were immediately discontinued. Uh, there were all kinds of problems from uh, they wouldn't repair anything. They wouldn't paint elevators out, lack of water, problems with the electrical. He brought many eviction cases against tenants in the building. Uh, and he brought the case to evict every tenant in the building in addition as I indicated, he brought a lawsuit against the attorneys representing the tenants in the building. I can't think of any other lawsuits he could have brought. He took six people and told them that they were going to be evicted. This was a Christmas Day lawsuit. Rebuild your walls, which have been taken down for 30 years now, within 10 days, or you will be in violation of a substantial provision of your lease. The tenants here say that Trump's harassment has taken on many forms. For example, they say a couple of years ago, Trump offered the vacant apartments in this building to the city's homeless. I'm willing to give them heated, beautiful apartments with services and medical services if necessary. Why not set up cots in this conference room? Well, I'll tell you, because right here I don't have the room. Over there I do. New York State is basically 
brought its power to bear on Donald Trump and said, you can't do this. They conducted ten and a half months of hearings to find out whether they had probable cause for a violation uh, and found out, yes, Trump had harassed us. That we were able to also gain access through the media to the, the, the public and interest, therefore, the state uh, in, our, in our problems was only a, a fortuitous event since we are not nearly as skilled at public relations as Donald. This was Trump's first major defeat in New York. Hasn't left the tenants with much to celebrate. It hasn't stopped. The present is what I'm really concerned about now because even though we signed an agreement where it was supposed to be the end of harassment, Donald Trump and his people are still trying to evict tenants in this building. He wants the world, but what he wants primarily is Manhattan to be turned into a Donald Trump mecca for the super rich. No room for anyone else. The sporting life. If Donald Trump had tried to capture the money crowd with Trump Tower, nothing made him more of a people's billionaire than his entrance into the world of professional sports. The United States Football League was playing an autumn sport in the spring. Donald Trump bought the New Jersey Generals franchise. It was a team with no players anyone would call the best or the greatest. Trump quickly set about changing all that, painting Doug Flutie and other stars and promoting them and himself. Quite frankly, he loved it because the United States Football League in general and the, the, the general's team in particular uh, started Donald toward his celebrity status. What he really wanted was a National Football League franchise, and he quickly provoked a confrontation by pushing the other USFL owners into going head-to-head -head with the NFL. Playing in the fall meant big money and fame. His withdrawal would have killed the league, and Donald was aware of that. And Donald used that magnificently well. Uh, Donald never came right out and said, if you guys don't go to the fall, I'm going to take my football and go home. But it was implied enough so that you can put two and two together and get four. Donald was hell-bent to get into the NFL either via an accommodation or a merger or a court case, which, in my opinion, he hoped would lead to a merger. It would take a lawsuit, and lawsuits were one of Donald Trump's favorite sports. He pressured the other owners into joining him. The results were disastrous. I believe that Donald felt that he could single-handedly win the trial. If you talk to Donald today, I'm sure he'll tell you that that was not a defeat. But the key is whether the USFL won, and that's one in quotes, won the trial or not, the fact is that the USFL is not playing today. Boxing for a time brought Trump the fame he was seeking. Trump landed the Tyson Spinks championship fight. He and the other Atlantic City casino operators realized their greatest gaming jackpots ever. But that wasn't enough for Trump. He wanted to own Mike Tyson. First, he tried to join forces with Bill Caton, Tyson's manager. Trump was rebuffed in his efforts to become Caton's partner, so he set about trying to steal the fighter. At a celebrity cocktail party, he had come over to the table where I was sitting with my family and friends, put his arm around me, and told all the people at the table how wonderful I was, how much he loved me, how much he appreciated and respected me for putting together this fight. He said, only you could have kept it on track, Bill. 
we owe you for getting this fight on. But then two days later, I found out he was working with the women against my interests. When Tyson's marriage to Robin Givens set up a three-cornered power fight with Givens and her mother Ruth Roper in one corner, Caden in another, and promoted Don King in a third, Trump saw the answer to everything, or so he thought. Trump had to be involved directly or indirectly into, into, this, into this new scenario for Tyson. When he got the lawyers, when he got the, the publicists, Trump had to be behind that. Trump used Givens and Roper against Caden. He even moved them into an apartment in Trump Tower. But Givens and Tyson didn't stay married. When Tyson lost the women, Trump lost the power. Because Trump's ticket to Tyson were the women. Though Trump made the wrong bet, he didn't lose entirely. Iron Mike may have skipped to another corner, but Trump still gets some of his fights and some of the money. Checkmate. And it's spelled C Z E C H. It looked too good to be true, and it was. She was a mother, a wife, a casino executive, a fashion plate. No wonder she talked so fast. What's good for, for, for Atlantic City, it's good for Trump as a Trump because as nicer the city is going to become and as more visitors we are going to bring in not only Trump but Atlantic City is going to benefit from. Like everything else in Trump's story, the facts his publicity machine ground out about Ivana were just the point of departure. Born in Czechoslovakia, she made a marriage of convenience to an Austrian, allowing her to leave and join her lover in Montreal. There she was a runway model not a top fashion model, as Trump and his publicists said. She was an accomplished skier, but not an Olympic skier, as publicized. Donald and Ivana met in a New York singles bar. They were married in 1977 by the Reverend Norman Vincent Peale, the exponent of the power of positive thinking. The Trumps had three children, but Ivana wanted more. I was a girl, and I was young. And I was supposed to be at home, I was supposed to be maybe collecting the art. I wasn't supposed to be in their domain. I wasn't supposed to be running hotel and casino, which was a totally male-oriented business. Now she started at the top, promoting the Trumpian vision as the titular president of Trump's Atlantic City Castle. But as she helped her husband, she also established herself. She became, in a sense, a competitor for media attention. There is competition in certain marriages. This one, since the marriage seemed to be played out more in the tabloid press and in, in the broadsheet newspapers of, of New York, rather than in, in, in a private household, that there is a competitiveness there uh, for, for headlines, for attention. But for all the smiles and the glittering entrances at society events, this marriage was not as harmonious as it seemed. If you're good to him, he's incredible to you. If you're bad at him, you're dead. Someone told me once who was involved in Trump organization worked there that everyone that works for Donald spends 50% of their time worrying about incurring Donald's wrath except for one person, Ronald Trump. He said he, she spends 90% of her time trying to worry about how not to get Donald to yell at her and now how not to incur his wrath. 
But even as she worried, she stood up to her husband. It may have been Donald who coveted the biggest yacht in the world. It was Ivana who used it. It may have been Donald who bragged about his Palm Beach house. It was Ivana who loved it. She has her own little spa there, and I know Barbara Walters, I hear, is coming. So she has many wonderful friends who are in business, who are workers. I guess she's quite a chore worker herself. I have to ask Ivana to stand up, because if we had this dinner here a year ago, it would not have been the same, believe me. She's done a great job. When Trump bought the Plaza Hotel, he made her president. Her salary, he said, would be $1 a year and all the dresses she could buy way of complimenting her and putting her in her place at the same time. It was also a convenience. His romance with Marla Maples was blossoming. He wanted to install her in Atlantic City, and to do that, he had to bring Ivana back to New York. In 1989, an event that telegraphed the stress in her life, Ivana underwent a physical transformation. Was it to save her marriage? If so, it didn't work. By now, Donald had Marla. When the Trumps finally reached the divorce settlement after reams of gossip column speculation, it looked just like the prenuptial agreement they had all along. But Ivana left with something extra. She became a Trumpian star in her own right, with a seven-figure book deal, a career as an advertising model with a daughter, and the freedom to enjoy the glittering social life her husband so often said he hated. As for Donald, the art of the deal with Marla was to stay in the headlines, but not necessarily close the transaction.
Among the locals, Trump fared no better. When he tried to get his tax assessment lowered, he failed. Finally, it turned out that this deal wasn't as artful as he claimed. In his book, The Art of the Deal, Trump said that he bought the house for $8 million, paying 100% cash. Actually, he spent $10 million, of which only $2,000 was cash. Now, Mar-a-Lago is on the market again, and because Trump can't find a buyer, he's filed another plan to subdivide his national treasure. Then there's Trump Plaza of the Palm Beaches, beautiful to look at from Palm Beach, but actually in West Palm Beach, across the water, and in a definitely downscale neighborhood. Trump bought these condos out of bankruptcy and put his name on them. When they didn't sell, he offered prospective buyers rides on the Trump Princess. Now, the bank that held the mortgage on these towers has auctioned the apartments at fire sale prices. There's an underground passage from Trump's house to the Bath and Tennis Club. Other owners have been able to use it. Palm Beach veterans say Trump never will. And they're not shy about telling Trump why he hasn't made it here. We fear change like hell, like we fear tigers. We're terrified of change. We've just had to landmark the bridges because they wanted to make huge, high-span bridges. We don't want change here at all. What's irked some people about Trump is that he hasn't really become a part of the charity thing. If, if he really wanted to be a part of this town, then perhaps they feel he should give money toward those causes. Help us with money. Yeah. <laughs> for yes, money, money for charities. He, he could lend his, lend lend his name, lend his house, and, and sure. contribute to a lot of things. Anybody can buy your way into a charity ball. You give me $500, you're in. You donate $20,000, maybe you can be one of the co-chair people. Well, what is that? That's nothing. As far as getting in to the, to the parties and into the people's homes, you can't buy your way in. They like you, they will invite you, or they won't. The criteria still is the, the old family name. Uh, the Vanderbilts, the Whitneys, the Munns, the Phipps, and to them, Nouveau Riche is just Another thing he couldn't get into Palm Beach was his yacht. The harbor was too small. So while it was there, the Trump princess had to be moored in Fort Lauderdale, next to a Best Western motel. I don't think he has the making of being a real Palm Beach. That was so hurt. Side of this most public man. He has a loner quality. 
there's no question about it. And there, for all the sense of Donald Trump as someone who's out and around all the time, there are dozens, if not hundreds of times that I have spoken to him at 9.30 or 10.30 or 8 o'clock at night uh, on a weekday when the only thing between me and him interfering is the remote control changer changing the channels. He presents himself marvelously. But the Donald Trump that I saw in real life does that mean? was very different from the Donald that I saw on TV or on some sort of video or, or a talk show or something. And that fascinated me, and that's when I realized how much a performance it was. He can be extremely articulate and very well-mannered, and he has this marvelous sort of boyishness that projects, I think, rather successfully on camera. Consider person, the people you see a hostility you know, and, and comments about him. Known him to say Consider their character. Freak out people that yeah. walk out and say, some performance, wasn't it? Um, a lot of times it's not a performance, and he'll claim it is. Because then it, again, it maintains his image that he's always in control. It's often out of control. You need to consider He treats people, I've seen people treated horribly. Inflammation, it's coming out. Extraordinary verbal assaults. He doesn't define himself from within. He doesn't define himself through uh, relationships or through some spiritual uh, interests and concerns. He does not have uh, close friends outside of his family. But I don't He's think, so and he himself has said, that friendship, in the way that other people uh, might think it's important, is as high a priority for him. You expect employees to speak well of the boss. Some of Trump's associates seem to genuinely love him. One in particular was this man, John Beninov, vice president of Trump Plaza Hotel and Casino. We have a great leader in Mr. Trump and in Mr. Hyde, and they care about their people, and that's the difference at Trump Plaza. They truly care about their employees. We don't like to overwork. Four months after this interview, Beninov, Stephen Hyde, and Mark Edis, another key Atlantic City yes. executive, were killed in a helicopter accident. Oh. A stunned Trump publicly mourned their loss. Nine months later, in an interview in the New York Times, Trump attacked the three dead men, blaming many of his financial problems in Atlantic City on their mismanagement. The comments enraged some Trump employees. Trump later denied he made the criticism, but the reporter who wrote the story told us Trump couldn't have been more explicit. When you work for Trump, you know you're working for the best. There's, I think it's human nature. When people say, where do you work? When you're working for the number one place, there's a lot of pride behind that. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good. I hey, board. board it's a crap game games. operator. Why do you say that? Well, most of his money comes from crap games in Jersey. I mean, if that takes a genius to get money out of a crap game, come on, there's been geniuses in this city for uh, 100 years. That's what gambling is all about. You win some and lose some, but. It's really a trap. They were giving you $1,000 bills, and that's how you, you, you ran to the casino. You wanted the breaking up of your heart and the, the 